when he finally gets back to England and he has all that he would need, he has the, the means and the cultural standing for God to call him to go back to the Irish, the very place where he'd been enslaved, which at that point in time, I don't mean this to be unkind, but the civilization in Ireland, as he and others describe it, was nothing like it was in England, very much more backward, very much around pagan traditions and superstitions and things such as that. And it was in that culture that he was able to start a movement that eventually brought civilization back to England back in the centuries to follow. It's a remarkable turn of events. Why do we need to trust God's sovereignty? What is it about your life circumstances that makes living out your faith difficult? To help us put things into a biblical perspective and to take a closer look at the history of St. Patrick's Day and how Patrick's life demonstrates God's sovereignty, we welcome Dr. Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum to the show. Jim, welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. You're no stranger. You were with us pre-election October last year we got together. So glad to be on with you again today, Byron. It does seem like that was 10 years ago, doesn't it? But <laughs> glad to have the conversation, especially today. This is one of my favorite days of the year because we're celebrating one of my favorite people in all of Christian history. Also want our friends to know that you serve as resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White Health. The Denison Forum provides some great insight for discerning today's news differently, okay? You're going to get a different look at the news when you look at the Denison Forum. You are about empowering believers to navigate current issues and share the timeless truth of God's Word, which with a changing culture, it's still relevant, right? It is, because human nature doesn't change. That's something I read in a seminary textbook back 300 years ago when I was in seminary, dinosaurs roaming the earth and all that. Human nature doesn't change. Divine nature doesn't change. So what God said then is still what God says today, just as relevant today as when it was first inspired. That's an important principle as we look at culture through Scripture rather than Scripture through culture. Jim, St. Patrick's Day, of course, is being celebrated probably more here in America than even in Ireland. Green rivers, a beer, shamrocks, Irish folklore, but many really don't know the historical background behind St. Patrick, that he really was a hero for his time and also for ours. Absolutely. In fact, I believe he's really a story that deserves to be told in these days with what we're facing as evangelical Christians in our culture and the trajectory that we see in front of us. So the actual real St. Patrick was born around 389, we're not sure the exact date, in England. Very difficult time in history. At the age of 16, he was enslaved, captured, enslaved, dragged, as it were, over to Ireland and sold to an Irish farmer there, made to tend the Irish farmer's sheep. Somehow comes to faith in Christ. Six years later, he has a vision from God to go back to England, risks his life to do that. But back home in England, God gives him a burden for the Irish people, spends the next seven years in Bible study, goes back to Ireland as a missionary, founds 200 churches, wins 100,000 people to faith in Christ, withstands 12 attempts on his life, dies on March 17th, 461, which is why this is St. Patrick's Day, and really from then till now, the patron saint of Ireland. But the story doesn't end there, Byron. According to Thomas Cahill's book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, it was St. Thomas's or St. Patrick's uh, descendants, as it were, his ideological and intellectual descendants who repopulated the continent with learning, with education, with culture. In many ways, what he started, we inherit still today. Well, his father was a deacon from a Roman family of high social standing, I understand. 
probably one of the reasons why he was taken captive is they ransacked his family's property and took him captive. That's exactly right. In fact, his grandfather was probably a priest, his father a deacon, a family of enormous significance. That's part of what makes the story so compelling. When he finally gets back to England and he has all that he would need, he has the, the means and the cultural standing for God to call him to go back to the Irish, the very place where he'd been enslaved, which at that point in time, I don't mean this to be unkind, but the civilization in Ireland, as he and others describe it, was nothing like it was in England, very much more backward, very much around pagan traditions and superstitions and things such as that. And it was in that culture that he was able to start a movement that eventually brought civilization back to England back in the centuries to follow. It's a remarkable turn of events. Well, Jim, as you mentioned, a a pagan society at that time in Ireland, I mean, they were reported as sacrificing their children to pagan gods. You know, I can't help but think about how we in America, at the convenience of abortion, sacrifice millions of our children. It's the same story, and that's why his model is so important for us. He went to a place that didn't want him, went to a place that tried to reject his message again and again. And the, but the point in all of that, I think, Brown, is the more people resist the truth, the more they need the truth. The sicker the patient, the more necessary the doctor. doesn't make us better than anybody else. We're beggars helping beggars find bread. There but for the grace of God go we. But nonetheless, when we face resistance from the culture, when we see horrific things such as abortion in the culture, that makes our message even more urgent. It makes speaking the truth in love even more a priority for all of us, because God can use all of us as he used St. Patrick. Oh, Jim, that's a really good word there. And something else that's worth talking about is the fact that during those seven years he was captive there in Ireland, it's said that he was a shepherd. I just reflected back in the Psalms, of course, Psalm 23, thinking about King David and his shepherd days, that parallel being a shepherd. Really interesting, isn't it, how often God seems to use shepherds, whether it's David or it's Amos or up to St. Patrick, up to the modern day. I've led more than 30 trips to Israel, and when we go there, we always make our way through the Judean desert and the wilderness. We see the Bedouin shepherds there. We learn lessons even from their lives today. We learn that what matters isn't what we have so much as it's the family and the things that transcend us. We see these Bedouin who aren't as tied to one place as we are, not as tied to homes, not as tied to possessions as where they actually feel sorry for us. They see us as enslaved to our houses, as imprisoned in our homes. Back some years ago, the Israeli government came under such pressure that the Bedouin were not being treated well, so they built them apartments to live in. They actually put their goats in the apartments, and they continued to live in their tents because they felt they wanted to have the freedom of mobility, not to be tied to a location and to possession. So even today, I think God's teaching us through shepherds and and the nomadic lifestyle that really is who we are. We're all travelers making our way through this life, through this world, one day at a time. And two, when we follow God's call on our life, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be like a bed of roses. In the case of St. Patrick, when he heard the voice of God, he believed to speak to him in that dream, telling him to leave Ireland and go back to Britain. He walked nearly 200 miles. That's a pretty good distance to walk. (laughs) Absolutely. God's will almost never can be measured in terms of human outcomes, right? You think of, uh, for instance, the, uh, the call of God on Mary and Joseph. And they're needing to go from Nazareth to down to Bethlehem. That's 90 miles as the crow flies. Nine months pregnant on the back of a donkey. 
That's in Dallas traveling to Waco on the back of a donkey nine months pregnant. Oh my. Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. The word tribulation in the Greek flipsis was the weight they used to crush grain in the flour. Following Jesus is not a health and wealth kind of promise that you'll always be well and prosperous in this world, but your life will be significant here and rewarded forever. Jim, I had a professor back in Bible college that said a call to ministry is a call to prepare. And again, in St. Patrick's example, even though he had God's voice speaking to him in a dream to go back to Ireland to take the gospel, uh, he started religious training there in Britain. It lasted about 15 years, so he spent quite a bit of time preparing to go back. Such a great example for us, isn't it? Such a biblical example. You think of Jesus 40 days in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. You think of Paul and going out to Arabia after his call, after the Damascus Road experience. We can't give what we don't have. We can't leave where we're not willing to go. We have to be prepared to be used. I remember Billy Graham being asked toward the end of his career if he had any regrets. And he said one regret was he would have spent more time studying. Even Billy Graham would have spent more time preparing, more time praying, more time reading, more time studying, because the more prepared we are, the more usable we are. When I was graduating from uh, college, getting ready to go to seminary, the man that gave the academic scholarship that allowed me to go to college told me something I've never forgotten. He said, the Holy Spirit has a strange affinity for the trained mind. All other things equal, the more trained we are, the more usable we are. That was true for Patrick. That's true for us. Well, something I don't think people realize, St. Patrick was never actually canonized by the Catholic Church. Evidently, during the first millennium, there was no formal canonization process in the Catholic Church. And so as a result, we think of him as a saint in the sense because of his life, because of the example he gives to us. But even that is a principle for us, isn't it? Because I understand the Catholic tradition relative to canonization is different from most of us as Protestants. But the Bible speaks of all of us as saints, as the hagios, as the holy ones, as the ones called to be set apart. The word holy means to be set apart. To the degree that you're following Jesus today, to the degree that you're being set apart from that which is of the world that is not of the Lord, you're a saint. You're being used by God, the Holy God, to lead other people to the Holy God. And that's the privilege and the opportunity and the challenge that God has set before all of us today. Jim, among the legends associated with St. Patrick is he stood atop an Irish hillside and banished snakes from Ireland. One of the traditions. We have lots of traditions. We have the idea that he used the shamrock to teach the Trinity, which is kind of an interesting idea because it kind of works, doesn't it? Three, three sides of one, of one element, as it were. We have the idea that he banished the snakes, and that, that always goes back to the serpent, of course, and the Garden of Eden and all that's inside that. To the degree that that's true or that's not true, we do know that God gives us the power to accomplish his purpose. Whatever his call in us is in our lives, he will give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. Uh, Lee, I read from Oswald Chambers every morning, my utmost for his highest, and I love the statement he makes. God doesn't give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. If we'll step into the Jordan River, God will part the water. If we will follow him by faith, that positions us to receive what God wants to empower us to do. Whether it's riding snakes off an island or whatever the call is, <laughs> he'll give us the power we need to accomplish the purpose he's given us. Two, Jim, I think we need to be careful that our superstitions aren't some pagan ideas or things made up of man, that we are really truly following Scripture as the blueprint for our lives. 
I remember when we lived as missionaries on the island of Guam, the patron saint of the island is Lady of Cameron, and it's believed that there was two crabs that were carrying this Madonna out of the ocean, had a conversation. The crabs had a conversation with the fisherman. The fisherman was told to go home and take a bath so he could hold this Madonna. That's the legend, and now they have this, uh, you know, four or five-foot tall statue of Cameron in the basilica there. And every year she's brought out at the patron saint day and paraded around the city, you know. So we see signs of cultural things in history, but they don't always coincide with biblical accounts of how we should live our life in Christ. Such a good point. That's why we need to be Berean Christians, as Acts 17 says, where they search the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. So important that we read the world through the lens of Scripture and not Scripture through the lens of the world, isn't it? And then when we find traditions that aren't biblical, we can still use those to lead people to the truth that is biblical. We think of Jesus in John 4, the woman comes for water, so he starts with water and leads her to living water. We think of Paul quoting Greek philosophers in Acts 17 and leading them to the God of all wisdom. So we can use what's in the culture that isn't biblical as a springboard, as a, as a way to move from here to there and lead them to the truth that really is God's truth. But that starts by understanding the difference between truth and superstition ourselves and choosing to live biblically in every dimension of our lives. You know, the word luck, Jim, gets tossed around, wish you luck. I think even as Christians, we use that term kind of lightly. What is it about the word luck associated with the Irish? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of this really is how traditions get melded together, meshed together over the years. So this idea of the luck of the Irish actually starts with Irish miners in America working during the gold and silver rush years of the 19th centuries. Not so much Ireland is here. In fact, as you mentioned earlier, the Irish are kind of amused by the way Americans celebrate St. Patrick's Day very differently than they do. So you've got all this Irish folklore that we're familiar with. You break a looking glass, you'll have seven years bad luck, that sort of thing. There's one piece of Irish folklore I really want to warn us about. It says if you find a horseshoe, spin on it, throw it over your head, you'll have good luck. <laughs> if you plan to do that, Byron, let the rest of us know so we won't walk too close to you down the way. You know? So there's this idea that through luck and superstition, we can predict or control the future. And that's the downside of some good-hearted, well-intentioned kind of folklore, that sort of thing. If we have this idea that we can, through superstitious means, control the future, well, then we're trusting something other than the God of the universe, who's the only one that sees the future even better than we see the present. Well, Jim, does the Bible have anything to say about luck? Actually doesn't. When I did my research for the paper on the website, I found the closest you can get is to a statement in Ecclesiastes 9 that says time and chance happen to them all. But that's in the context of an incredible balance, Byron, that we could talk about for hours and hours. On the one side is divine sovereignty, on the other is human freedom. God is king of the universe. Jesus launched his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at end. When he comes back, his name will be king of kings and lord of lords. At the same time, he made us to love the Lord and love our neighbor. Love requires a choice. It requires freedom. So God gave us freedom, and he's so sovereign, he can honor the freedom he chooses to give us. It's no denial of his sovereignty if he gives us freedom that we misuse. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. Well, there's no third category here where you've got sovereignty, freedom, and then luck. God allows or causes all that happens within his sovereignty. God's given us freedom, chooses to honor our freedom, but superstition and luck is outside that. It's been said coincidence is when God prefers to remain anonymous. That's a good word there. 
Jim, the implications of divine sovereignty have occupied theologians for a long time. I suppose John Calvin is the most associated with this doctrine, but is the sovereignty of God only a Calvinist theology? Absolutely not. It really is, I think, all through Scripture. Again, this idea of God as king. Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He told us to seek first the kingdom of God. Well, in the biblical concept, a king is the king of the realm, not just the palace. He's king on Monday, not just Sunday. Jesus said, if, you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's the Greeks and the Romans that taught us to separate the spiritual from the secular religion, from the real world. They had this transactional religion. You place sacrifices on the altar so the gods would bless your crops. In the Bible, it's a transformational relationship with God, who is the sovereign of the universe, who is king of kings and lord of lords, king of all that is private and public. That's what the Bible says about the true, the true sovereignty of God. And Calvin, and what we think of as Calvinism, emphasizes that sovereignty. Well, the rest of the conversation, the Arminian side, if you wish, or whatever, also argues that God does give us freedom. And that's my position. We could have a long conversation about five-point Calvinism and the Arminian doctrine and all of that. I believe the balance is that God is sovereign. He gives us freedom. He chooses to honor our freedom. And that's no denial of his sovereignty. Well, we see here two statements, as you mentioned. Both are true, but appear to be making opposing claims. What do we do with this? It's the balance that is all through Scripture. My mind is finite and fallen. I can't begin to understand God's infinite mind. In fact, he says that to us. So God is three in one. Jesus is fully divine and fully human. The Bible's fully inspired and humanly written. God knows the future, but we have freedom to choose. At each point, it's what logicians call an antinomy, the acceptance of apparently contradictory truths as both true. The fact that it's a contradiction to me doesn't make it a contradiction to God. Jim, in the article you've written about the possible question where there is no answer, like how much does the color red weigh? Uh, what color is the number seven? Can God make a rock so big he can't move it, or two mountains without a valley in the middle, or a square circle? Those are the ideas of logical impossibilities that we sometimes attribute to God. If God's sovereign, he can make a mountain so big he can't move it. Well, asking God to do the logically impossible is no denial of his sovereignty. It's just a misuse of my freedom. It's what's called a category mistake, according to Gilbert Ryle. And so we come along and deny the sovereignty of God because we misuse our freedom. And that, again, is the sovereignty of God to allow us to do that. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2 that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. First, uh, Peter said that God does not want anyone to perish. It's clear in Scripture that God wants all people to know Him, and yet not all people know Him. That's because God honors the freedom He gives us. If when my sons were learning to drive as teenagers, they could pull the car keys out of my pocket and go wreck the car, that's a denial of my sovereignty. If I give them the keys and they wreck the car. That's not a denial of my sovereignty. That's the consequence of their misused freedom that I chose to honor. And so that, to me, is how we can balance sovereignty and freedom in a way that doesn't deny either one. You also use an illustration about your love for ice cream. You want to share that? (laughs) This is one of the many reasons my wife has reason to be frustrated with me. So (laughs) we walk into Baskin-Robbins and all of these flavors in the world. I get strawberry. Every 40 years we've been married, every single time strawberry. She doesn't understand this. She is aware of all the options that I'm choosing not to get. Well, to me, it just makes life simpler. Plus, strawberry is the best flavor. And so why wouldn't you just want strawberry, right? Well, Janet can predict that next time I'm going to get strawberry, but that doesn't force me to get strawberry. The fact that she knows what I'm going to do doesn't mean that she made me do it. 
Well, it's kind of an analogy in a way as regards God's ability to see the future better than we see the present. God sees what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, because to him, tomorrow is today. He's the great I am. He made time. He transcends time. C.S. Lewis said, if you think of time as a line on the page, God is the page. So God is sovereign over time. But the fact that he sees me making a choice doesn't mean he makes the choice for me any more than you. If you could watch me sit down in the studio here today, made me sit in the studio. You saw me do it, but that didn't make me do it. God knows what I'm going to do in the future, but that doesn't mean he makes the choice so much as he knows the choice. Jim, we see these natural occurrences without human choice, hurricanes, earthquakes, and some might even say this COVID-19 pandemic. Oftentimes people wonder in the context of that, is that sovereignty or freedom? And it really depends on how we're going to see this through a prophetic lens, doesn't it? We live in a fallen world, a broken world. Romans 8 says that the creation groans and travail. And so I don't believe that everything that happens in this broken natural world is necessarily the proactive will of God so much as the permissive will of God. On the other time, on the other hand, there are times in Scripture and in history when God proactively initiates judgment, as with the Exodus and what happened, obviously, in the plagues of Egypt and things you see in the book of Revelation. Here's how to tell the difference, I think, whether it's the COVID pandemic or hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever. When God proactively brings natural judgment, there's prophetic warning. There's Moses warning Pharaoh. There's the judgment that's that's warned by the prophets before the nation fell, that sort of thing. I'm not aware of prophetic warning before the COVID pandemic, nor am I aware of any way that the pandemic is tied to specific sin. I smoked and got lung cancer, something like that. But Jim, haven't you read all the Facebook postings? This is God's judgment? (laughs) (laughs) I have read some of those. In fact, in a sense, it's God's judgment in in a permissive sense that we live in a broken world. And God allows the consequence of the brokenness of creation that goes back to the Garden of Eden. But I don't see the pandemic as a proactive judgment of God. There wasn't the prophetic warning. It's not tied to specific sin. And then I believe, Byron, that God redeems all he allows. So now we're going to ask, how is God redeeming this pandemic? Well, he's showing us that we're mortal. He's showing us that we need him more than we thought we needed him. He's showing churches how to reach out beyond their buildings. God's using the pandemic in ways that glorify him. As you talk about suffering, how God uses this for the sake of our spiritual growth. I like the example you shared about the experience you had in college one summer as you served as a missionary in East Malaysia. What were the specifics to that experience? Yeah, thank you. I had the privilege of being for a summer on the island of Borneo in East Malaysia. It was one of the most formative, difficult and exhilarating experiences of my life. I and a a music leader spent eight weeks there going week by week to these villages, very remote villages, many of which had no electricity, had no running water. Oftentimes, we were the first people from the West they'd ever seen. In one particular village, it was especially dangerous to be there at that time. We were only supposed to be there that day, but the road washed out. We spent three days, two nights, keeping guard through the night. It was kind of a dangerous place to be. But in the midst of that experience, I discovered that in my loneliness, in my fear, quite frankly, in my sense of isolation, God was present, and God even redeemed that. So a story I'll never forget to tell very quickly, Brian. We were at that particular village I just mentioned. It was a difficult, even on some occasion, terrifying place. So I was sitting out on the porch of this little hut here. Uh, I had my guitar with me. I, I was grieving. My heart was broken. I was that lonely. I felt that isolated from the world and all that I knew. I just began singing the only song in the Malay language I knew, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Eyes closed, sitting at night, this kind of lantern there on this on this small kind of, uh, kind of thatched 
sort of uh, sort of a porch to this hut. I opened my eyes after a bit, and the children from the village had gathered around me. They heard the guitar, and they sat there with me. And through my tears and their joy, we sang again and again in their language, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I've never forgotten that moment when God used children in an isolated village on the island of Borneo to remind me that he loves me no matter where I am, no matter what's happening in my life. What's true in the light is also true in the dark. Jim, that's so well-spoken. When we get so confused in life and we wonder, where is God? That simple truth that Jesus loves me, this I know. I remember you sharing the story about your father's death back in 79 at such a young age, and it was one of the greatest pains in your life. And then your oldest son was diagnosed with cancer several years ago, and you talked about watching him go through surgery and radiation, and any parent would change places without hesitation. Absolutely. And those were places where the sovereignty of God became tough for me, really hard for me, Byron. I prayed for my son Ryan from the moment that we knew he'd been conceived, every single day praying for himself. Now, I never believed naively that that meant difficulty would never come, but when it did, I will tell you, the next morning I went for a long walk in our neighborhood. My heart was broken for my son and what he was facing, and I was angry. I was in my own human spirit, fallen spirit, angry at God. But you know, as angry as I was at him, he wasn't angry at me. Even though I shook my fist at him, he did not shake his fist at me, and he walked with me through that. And one of the things he taught me, Byron, is that as grieved as I was for my son, that's how much my father grieved the death of his son for me. If I could watch my son suffer with, with cancer, watch his son suffer from my sin. It caused me to understand the love of my father for me on a level I'd never experienced before. And so many don't realize the father chose his son to endure such suffering so that we wouldn't have to suffer. And that's why he sent his son to be executed on that cross so many years ago. When I take people to the Garden of Gethsemane, that's one of the points we try to make. We always think about Jesus' decision at the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, not my will, but thine be done. And what an incredible decision that was. But it's also the Father's decision. When three times his son pled with him for this cup to be passed from him, and three times the Father said no to his son so he could say yes to us. To me, it's an, ex- it's an exhibition of our Father's love for us in a way that changes everything about our suffering. When we see that our Father loves us, suffers with us, and redeems our suffering for His glory and our good. Oh, Jim, thank you so much for putting in perspective the sovereignty of God, His love for us, and the history, too, behind St. Patrick and how it can apply to us today, how we can be bold for Christ, take the gospel to places that might not be so lovely, might not be so comfortable. But do it by God's command, by God's power and the Holy Spirit to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation to us, isn't it, Brian? What a privilege to talk about St. Patrick and find ways that we can emulate St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day and every day to the glory of God. Tell our listeners how they can subscribe to your newsletter, the Denison Forum. Denisonforum.org, D-E-N-I-S-O-N forum.org. That's where they can see the daily article, the papers, the books, the audio, the video, the media appearances that are there as well. Because we're a donor-based ministry, we give away all the digital content, and so all of it's right there at the website, denisonforum.org. Well, it's been my pleasure, my friend, to have you back on Bot Radio Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for taking time. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you and to all who are hearing us today, Byron. So glad to be on with you. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.